The background of this psalm, I think, is very interesting, especially in light of Father's Day. Because I believe that what we have in this psalm is, uh, the context is that David has committed uh, sin with Bathsheba. Uh, he has seen her sunbathing. He's come out on his roof and he looks down and he sees her sunbathing. And then as king, he abuses his power. <coughs> takes advantage of his authority. You ever believe that has done something like this? And he invites her into the palace and he has a relationship with her. And then he sends her husband, who's a soldier, to the front lines of battle. He tells the leading general, I want him in the most dangerous zone so he never comes back. And sure enough, her husband, Uriah, is killed on the front line. And so, as a result of this, David's child uh, that he has by Bathsheba, uh, an illegitimate child, uh, ends up dying as a result of God punishing David. So we see in the life of David, this psalm where he's in the middle of all that turmoil and he's crying out to God to help him get out of this mess that he has created for himself. Now, so I did something very interesting yesterday. I decided to go back and see if I could discover how many children David had and what kind of a father he was. So I, I thought I'd turn you to, to 2 Samuel. So if you go to 2 Samuel, I want you to keep your hand in 2 Samuel for a moment. Because I, I may turn back here one more time. But in 2 Samuel, and go to 2 Samuel chapter 3, we have a list of David's children. 2 Samuel chapter 3. Now we're going to discover how well I can read these Hebrew names. <laughs> because I was dyslexic before they had that term dyslexic. I was DAA before they had ADD. <laughs> But when you go to uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 3, and you look down at verse 2, 2 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, The sons of David, the sons, sons were born to David in Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoab, Jezreelitis. So that's his first son. His second, Kiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal. Remember when he stole Nabal's vineyard? And he ends up marrying this guy's wife. So he's the second son, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, whom we saw a few weeks ago, the son of Maacha, uh, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggai, the fifth. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, uh, Ithraim, by David's wife, Eglon. These were born to David in Hebron. So there's six children right there. Six children that David has. Now, I want you to turn to chapter 11. Chapter 11. I didn't do too bad on this. <laughs> Chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. 
Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David's king, and this tells the story of his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. So we'll just look at verse 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, and he walked onto the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So he inquires of her, it's Bathsheba, he brings her in, he has this relationship with her. Uh, he sends the husband, the husband dies on the front lines, and uh, look at verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Even though she had a relationship with David, guess what? Her husband dies, she mourns over the death of her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife, and she bore a son. Now here's the phrase I want you to notice because it's going to come back. You're going to see it in Psalm 6. Okay? But the thing that David had done, watch this. This pleased the Lord. Now I want you to remember that. The Lord is displeased. Don't forget the word. I want you to put it in your mind. The word displeased. Okay? And so what God does is he sends Nathan the prophet in chapter 12. And he says, as a result of this, David you're going to end up uh, having problems. And the two problems that God says are going to happen uh, are number one, he said you're going to lose your child. And number two, this, this uh, sin of yours will give your enemies an opportunity to come against you because you've made a fool of yourself. Two things are going to happen. You're going to lose your child and your enemies are going to take this as an occasion turn against you, come against you. So what happens, sure enough, that child gets sick. And in the middle of chapter 12, it says that David, look at verse 16. Well, let's look at the, look at the end of verse 15. After uh, Nathan departed to his house, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. Don't even have a name at this point. And the child became ill. Therefore, David pleaded with God. Now, that's what the psalm's going to be about. David's pleading. Therefore, David pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted. And he went and he lay all night on the ground. And it goes on and says he does this for seven days. You see that in verse 18. On the seventh day, it came to, the, came to pass that the child died. And uh, then a discussion occurs, and what we discover is that during those seven days, when that child was sick, David fasted and he wept, because you can see that in verse 21. Then the servant said to him, what is it that you've done? You have fasted and you wept for the child while he was alive. So David spends seven sleepless nights weeping for this child, begging God to save this child and get David out of that mess. And uh, it doesn't happen. God doesn't answer that prayer. Uh, and his enemies use it for an occasion to come against him. Okay? Now God will answer the prayers. We'll see in Psalm 6 about the enemies. But the child still dies. Now go over to Psalm 6. Now with that, that's going to be our background. Are you with me? We don't know the background of all Psalms. But we do know the background of this. And we think it's the Bathsheba affair. Okay? Now last week we looked at Psalm 5, and that was what we've called the first imprecatory prayer in uh, the book of Psalms. An imprecatory prayer 
is uh, a prayer in which a, a psalm or a prayer in which the, the one who's praying calls judgment down upon uh, his enemies. So that was Psalm 5 was an imprecatory prayer where David calls judgment down upon his enemies. Psalm 6 is one of seven penitential psalms. Penitential psalm. A penitential psalm is a psalm of penitence. It is a psalm where the writer in prayer form cries out and repents of his sin and he pleads for mercy. Okay? It's the psalm of a troubled soul. It's the psalm or a prayer of a contrite heart. Okay? Now, I'm going to show you how we really don't know tradition in Christianity. Uh, in the liturgical churches, that would be like the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Churches. Those churches use the seven penitential psalms during the season of Lent. Because what is Lent? Lent is the time when we are to examine ourselves according to church tradition and have contrite hearts and cry out to God in repentance, plead for God's mercy. So these penitential psalms, this is one of them, I think the next one is Psalm 38, and then there's seven total in the psalms, are very important to the liturgical churches. Okay. And because we don't understand these things, we don't use these psalms in that way. In fact, we rarely use the psalms at all in any way, except that we read them in their sources of comfort. Now, I want you to remember also that these psalms were originally poems, or songs that were put to music. Okay? And these were what we call the national hymns of Israel. Uh, and just as our Star Spangled Banner, our national anthem, causes our minds to go back to an historical event. So these psalms are designed to force our minds back and think of historical events that took place in Israel. That's what it served for the Jewish people. So when they read this psalm, guess what historical event they remembered? Bathsheba, Uriah, that mess that the country went through because they had a president or they had a king who decided to do something immoral. So that's what we've got here. Okay? So I think that the background of the psalm is the Bathsheba affair. And this tells us something. It tells us that the Psalms are not, they're written in a context. In order for you to understand it, you need to understand the historical context. The Psalms aren't written in a vacuum. It's not like you can pick a Psalm up and just read, oh, that comforts my soul. Well, it might, guess what, but you don't understand the Psalm. You can't understand the Psalm unless you understand the context, the background for which it is written. So in this case, we're going to call it the Bathsheba Affair. And the result of David's sin is that he is now suffering physically and emotionally over this thing. A loss of a child, sickness of a child, and eventually loss of a child, and his enemies are taking advantage of him. Okay? So, in an act of desperation, he cries out to God. Now, I want you to look at the superscription on the psalm. There's a little title up there. Not the one that's in bold that your publisher put in there. But you'll see another title, and it should say something like this. To the chief musician. See that? If you have a pretty good study Bible, you'll see that. So David is giving the choir director or the orchestra director 
in the temple of Jerusalem instructions how to put these words in the music. And here's what he said to the chief musician with stringed instruments. Now you may have a Hebrew word there. The word simply means stringed instruments. On the eighth stringed harp. You may also have another Hebrew word, but it's just a little Hebrew word that means eighth. And it could be describing an instrument that has eight strings, like here it says eight-string harp. It just says eight in the Hebrew. Just eight. On the eighth. Does that mean on an eighth eight-string instrument? Or does it mean eight beats to a what is it, a measure or something like that? Hey, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so we're not sure exactly uh, what the eighth is. And then it's identified as a psalm of David. Now here's how we're going to divide it. Part one of the psalm, David's desperate plea, verses one through seven. David's desperate plea, verses one through seven. Part two, verses eight through ten, David's assurance that his plea is being answered. Okay? His penitential prayer is being answered. Let's look at David's uh, desperate plea. Verse one. I want you to notice that it's stated in negative terms. David says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Now last week we learned about parallelism, didn't we? In this uh, session, that parallelism is a Hebrew form of poetry where line one and line two mean the same thing, using different words. Well, line one, here it is. O Lord, do not rebuke me. Look at that. Don't rebuke me. Line two. Don't chasten me. That basically means the same thing. Rebuke and chasten mean the same thing. Look at line one. Don't rebuke me in your anger. Look at line two. Don't rebuke me in your hot displeasure. You see that? Anger and hot displeasure. Now what word did I tell you to remember? Oh, displeasure. That's right. That's why Old Testament scholars think that this is probably linked to the Bathsheba affair. God is displeased with David over that affair. So David is saying, you're displeased over this affair, uh, but man, don't don't take it out on me. You know, uh, uh, don't don't rebuke me. Now he doesn't say don't rebuke me. He says don't rebuke me how in your anger or in your hot displeasure. Uh, make this more of a loving rebuke. Now we have this uh, sugar-coated concept of God. That God is never angry, but let me tell you, it says he's angry. And it says hot displeasure. Now that word hot means that this is displeasure that's more than just normal displeasure. Okay? So I think what's happening here is David isn't asking God to stop punishing him. In fact, David is going through the punishment right now when he's praying. The punishment's on. But what he is saying is, Lord, uh, don't keep rebuking me. Don't keep chastening me in your hot displeasure. Uh, you know, I can't take it anymore. So David is asking God to relieve this pressure from him. Okay? Now, in verse 2, he makes his plea in terms of, uh, in positive terms. Look what he said. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. Now, again, notice there's a parallelism. Look what it says. Have mercy. Look at that. Have mercy. Look at line 2. Lord, heal me. It means basically the same thing. David is uh, going through a mental and physical crisis over this. He hasn't slept for seven days. He is run down. He is saying, O Lord, uh, have mercy on me. O Lord, heal me. And uh, he gives the reason why he wants God to do it. He says, 
For I am weak. See that? For I am weak. Line two. For my bones are troubled. I am weak. Well, I guess you would be weak after about seven days of not sleeping, wouldn't you? Look. My bones are troubled. Now, why, how, why does it mean I am weak and my bones troubled? My bones shake. My bones tremble. That's basically what that concept means. That my bones tremble. They shake. Uh, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, how does bones being troubled and I being weak equal the same thing? Well, let me ask you this. I am weak, which means I'm weak all over. Uh, where are your bones? Are they just in your hand? Oh, they're all over. That's why you can really make a mistake interpreting the Psalms if you don't understand the parallelism. The line one is basically saying the exact same thing as line two. So it's important. Now, what I want you to notice, and I think this is also important, in the time of trouble, even in the trouble of his own making. Look, a lot of times we can get in trouble. It's not trouble of our own making, our own choosing. This was trouble of his own choosing that he brought upon himself. In that kind of trouble, the tendency for us, when we get ourselves in a mess, is to run to God. David runs to God. Even in a mess that he made for himself. See, usually people run from God. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? <laughs> you see, you can just find you know, illustration after illustration. Saul gets himself in trouble. King Saul runs to what you've been doing. <laughs> Instead of running to God. Jonah runs to Tarshish. <laughs> just the opposite of the way God wanted him to go. But David, this is this is why there's, David is the man after God's own heart. He makes big mistakes. He sins in a big way. He is an unrighteous person in that sense. Just like the pastor said, there is a we're radically depraved. But when David gets into a mess, he has enough sense to know where to run, and he runs to God, and that's why he's a man after God's own heart. He eventually turns to God. Does that make sense to you? Now look at verse 3. He says, My soul is also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Now, when David says, My soul is also troubled, he's saying, Hey, I'm not only a physical wreck, I'm an emotional wreck. He not only, doesn't only have physical problems, he has emotional problems and psychological problems. And he says, my soul is also greatly troubled. It's a very important word that we'll see a little bit later in the text. And he says, but you, God, look at this, but you, O Lord. No, I'm troubled, but you, O Lord. What do you think he's trying to say when he says that? Are you troubled too? Uh, how long will you be troubled over my mess that I have made? Something along that line. And then he throws this out, which is very interesting. He says, how long? How long what? How long will you stay displeased with me, and how long will I have to go through this thing? Now, there's a sense in which David understands that this punishment that he's getting from God, this chastisement, 
could go on for a long time. He doesn't know whether he can make it or not. He is, you know, at the end of his rope, he's at wit's end. I don't think that he thinks that he might make it through, but he does ask God, well, how long is this going to happen? How long will I have to be punished? Most of us, when we get ourselves into trouble, this is why David, I think, is different. When we get ourselves into trouble, we expect God to get us out of it like that. It's an amazing thing. Amazing. And what happens is that uh, we've, we've sinned for a long period of time. You don't think David's uh, affair with Bathsheba just lasted the one, it wasn't a one night stand, was it? I mean, it took time for the husband to get out on the front lines. Hey, this went on a long time. Guess what? We sin a long time, but we want God to get us out of the mess instantly. So, David realizes that this could be long. Now, how long will this judgment last? Well, for, for Israel, it lasted 430 years in Egypt. That's how long it lasted. You want to know how long? I'll tell you, it can last 430 years. For Judah, it lasted, the judgment lasted 70 years in Babylon. For Jonah, it was three days in the belly of the fish. Now, that means that the judgment can be a short judgment, three days. It can be a long judgment, seven years. It can be really a long judgment. It can actually, no, it can be over in the weekend. It could be over in your lifetime in 70 years. Or it could be transgenerational. The punishment could go on for generation after generation after generation because of your sin. You know, it's a very interesting thing here. So David is saying, well, how long is this going to have to to go on and he wants to know this question and we know already because like the pastor I gave you the answer before I preached the sermon uh, he, it's going to go on for seven days. Yeah, seven days and then his enemies also are plotting against him so look what he says verses 4 through 6 he repeats those pleas but he gives us additional information look what he says return O Lord. Now that word means that God in a sense has turned his back on David. And so what he's asking God to do is to turn back to him and let his face shine upon him. That was the Hebrew blessing. See, God is basically cursed to David. David's under the curse of God right now based on Deuteronomy. And what he's doing is asking God to turn and allow his face, his countenance to shine upon him and bless him. So he says, Lord, return. And then he says, Lord, deliver me. Deliver me from what? From all the mess that I'm in, deliver me from myself, deliver me from my sickness, deliver me from the death of my enemies. And then he says, oh, save me. Oh, save me. For your mercy's sake. Not because I deserve it. David doesn't deserve to be delivered. He deserves to be punished. But he asked God to deliver him based on God's mercy. And then he says something very interesting. He gives God a motivation. Now this is sort of interesting. This is sort of a psychological thing. He says, because for, look at verse 5, giving God a motivation for delivering. Because uh, in death, there's no remembrance of you. If you allowed me to die, guess what? There'd be no remembrance of you. In the grave, who 
will give you thanks. And the answer is, is how many people in the grave are thanking God every day? No, no one. The answer is no one. So what David is saying is this. Uh, <clears throat> that's a parallelism. No remembrance. Uh, no one in the grave gives thanks. Uh, David is saying this. Should I die, Lord? Now listen. Should you allow me to die and you don't deliver me from this mess? Uh, and I end up in the grave, then I will never be able to stand up in front of your people and recount the great acts of your deliverance in the past. I will not be able to remind the people how you acted over and over and over again. See, that's what he's saying here. Uh, I will not be able to stand up and give you thanks and praise you, and you will not be getting glory from my lips if I end up in the grave. So that's what he's saying. So David says, you know, Lord, you, there's an advantage to you that, I, that you would say to me. Here's a good reason for you to deliver me because if I'm dead, I can't praise you anymore. And he's right. You know, I've never, I don't know anybody lying in a mausoleum at a restland that gets up every morning and has a worship service. They don't do that. They don't have testimony times in seminaries. Did you ever notice that? Did you ever notice that when you walk by a grave that person that's in the grave is silent? That's what David is saying. If you uh, allow me to go to the grave, then, then my my voice is silent. Guess what, God? If you allow me to stay alive, I'll tell the people how you delivered me. I'll praise you. See, so he's giving God a motivation. Now, the unfortunate thing is David wouldn't even have to be doing these things had he not gotten into the mess to begin with. See? And so, there's a sense in which David is asked, is you know, bargaining with God. We don't ever do that, do that. If you get me out of this mess, Lord, I will serve you. I will give some money to this. I will, whatever the situation is, I'll give the money to New Delhi if you get me out of this mess. <laughs> and but you know, if you don't get me out of this mess, guess what? I can't give any. <laughs> so David's bargaining with God. I see this as David's bargain. Uh, but anyway, look what happens in verse 6. He says, I am weary with my groaning. <coughs> I am weary with my groaning. That means I'm exhausted. Uh, <clears throat> so exhausted I can't even, can't even speak. So exhausted all I can do is moan. So exhausted all I can do is groan. See? All I can do is go... All I do is sigh. He's so worn out, physically exhausted, too much for him to speak. All night, he says in verse 6, I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. That's a far cry from Psalm 4, wasn't it? When he said, now I lay me down to sleep. Remember how he could sleep no matter what? Slept like a baby, didn't it? Psalm 4. Look, now... Instead of sleeping, he's weeping. Yeah? Now, we saw back in the Bathsheba situation where David didn't sleep for seven nights and it said he fasted and he wept. That's what he's saying right here. Look, he's weeping. I drench my couch with tears. See? So, all he can do is, he's so physically exhausted, all he can do is groan. 
Uh, he's emotionally exhausted. All he can do is cry. And yet his mind is racing a mile a minute and he can't sleep. Now let me tell you, crying for seven days is a sign of depression. You, anybody of you are involved with uh, counseling or in the psychology, when people just start crying all the time, uh, it's not because the Lord's blessing them, they're getting a tear of blessing. <laughs> it's because they are in a state of depression. Very, very serious state. And I think that David is in this state of depression. And uh, so he's describing what, what it's like. He can't sleep and he is in a physical state of anguish, an emotional state of anguish. But there's one thing that's different. These tears are tears of repentance. He's come to his senses and he realizes what he's done. He's not just crying now just to get out of the situation. He's now crying because of the situation, the mess that he's made. He's realized it, and he's crying, and these are, in a sense, tears of repentance. Okay? So, uh, he's crying all night long, never sleeping, on his bed. And it's sort of interesting, an irony, if you will, that the place that the sin took, the, the location where the sin took place, the bed, is the place where the repentance uh, occurs. The place where he got himself into trouble, the bedroom, is the place where he's going to get himself out of trouble by crying out in tears of repentance. So, uh, the bed is the place where people lie awake at night and they plot evil things and come up with their schemes and think of people they can, what they can do the next morning. But it's also the place where God can deal with the conscience, with the conscience. And then he says this, as a result of all the crying, he says, my eyes waste away because of grief. Look at that. My eyes waste away because of grief. Now, that's a hyperbole. Heard of hyperbole? That's sort of an yeah. Yeah, exaggeration. Uh, no one's eyes go blind because they grieve. I've never heard of anybody that's been crying, and guess what? Seven days later, they're blind, they can't see. It's a hyperbole. It's like we said, well, I just cried my eyes out. Well, you still have eyes, you know, and they still have tears, and it's a hyperbole. Uh, he says, uh, but what he's saying is, guess what? He says, man, all I can do is cry because of my grief. It grows old. My eye grows old because of my enemies. Well, no, your enemies don't make your eyes get bad. But what we have here, I think, and this is important, is that we have a new ingredient in verse 7. My enemies. That? My enemies have not been mentioned up until this point, but now they're mentioned in verse 7. So, this, some people say it's because of that phrase, my enemies, that some Old Testament scholars say that Bathsheba's situation is not the background for the psalm. It's simply that David's having problems with his enemies. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's both. Because the curse that God placed on him through Nathaniel the prophet was that his son would die, and number two, he'd have problems with his enemies. And he's been praying and crying his heart out for his son, and uh, the enemies are taking advantage of him right here. So, <clears throat> David's not only falling apart in a sense, but his kingdom is falling apart. And his enemies are using that as an opportunity to take advantage of him. And that's exactly what happens when you, when your world is falling apart. Uh, that's what your enemies will do. 
we have a senator this week who said that he had an affair, an extramarital affair, a senator from Utah, Republican senator from Utah. Do you think that his enemies are taking advantage of that? Oh, yeah. Do you, you think they're making sure he is removed from certain committees and things like that? I think you've been reading about that. So that's what happens. How about Job? When Job got into problems, guess what? He had three friends. Hey, you ever hear the statement, with friends like that? <laughs> See, this is what happens. These people come in and they will give you every reason why that you're having this problem and they will turn against you and use it to their own advantage. And uh, so I think that this is the situation. Uh, David is wasting away physically. He's wasting away emotionally. All he can do is cry. He's got himself into a mess. And his enemies are taking advantage of him. When Bill Clinton had his affair with Monica Lewinsky, did his enemies take advantage of it? Oh, yeah. Every bit they could, and that's just the way it is. It doesn't matter what the problem is. It doesn't have to be a sexual sin. You know. When Nixon was got mixed, mixed, mixed up in Watergate, did his enemies take advantage of it? Yes, he was impeached. Okay. So that's what you have. You have this king who's not very kingly, acting very kingly, and he's losing control of his life and his kingdom and... Uh, he just everything he just looks old he's aged he's aged, in a week he's aged seven years you know instead of seven days so what he does is he cries out to God now we come to part two of the psalm psalm 8 verses 8 through 10 David's assurance that he's been answered now look what he says in verse 8 depart from me all you workers of iniquity why for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. Hey, look, the whole thing is, turns around. Now, in literature, uh, we call this a pivot point. I teach a class on hermeneutics, how to preach, how to interpret text. And one of the things I'm always teaching my students is hunt for the pivot point. The pivot is that point in a story or a piece of literature that's the turning point where everything just turns on an axis and it's it just a total change. And suddenly, this is the pivot point. This is the turning point. Uh, David says, and look what he says in verse 8. Depart from me. Now he's talking to his enemy. Uh, what he's saying to them is, get lost. You know, get out of here. Uh, look what he calls his enemies. Workers of iniquity. You see that? Remember last week, Psalm 5 and verse 5? It says, God hates all what? Workers of iniquity. Look, God hates the workers of iniquity. David tells his enemies, get out of here, you workers of iniquity. Why? Look at verse 8. Because the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. So he tells his enemies to depart in verse 8. You see that? What did he tell God to do in verse 4? Return. Look at that. You see that? God, return to me. Deliver me. And now he knows God's going to do it. And guess what he says to his enemies? Depart from me. Look at the end of verse 8. Because the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. You see, that's a pivot point. That's a turning point. So uh, David realizes that uh, God has heard his prayer. Now let me ask you, how does he know God's heard his prayer? How does he know that God has answered his prayer? Is it because of an inner sense? <laughs> I know that I know that I know. How does he know God's heard his prayer? Is it because 
God has sent Nathaniel or Nathan the prophet to tell him. Just as he told him what his punishment would be. But God spoke through prophets in those days. Is that how he's done it? Uh, or is it simply that David knows that with repentance comes forgiveness? Genuine repentance brings genuine forgiveness. David knows that from the scriptures himself. And I want to tell you that God is not slack concerning his promise. But is long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you've got sin in your life and no one knows about it, you're like David, what you've done in secret, God knows about it and you know about it, it's affecting your life. Whatever the situation is, I want to tell you, if you repent, God will hear that prayer and God will forgive you. He'll do it today. It's just like that. Now, by the way, I should show you something interesting in verse 8. Notice that the weeping has a voice. You see that? For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. David can't even articulate his words to God. All he can do is groan. But guess what? God understands that groaning. God understands that weeping. Weeping has a voice that God understands when it's a weeping that's repentant. And then he says, The Lord has heard my supplication. In verse 9, that's a statement of victory. He knows that this, the problem is being solved. The Lord will receive my prayer. The Lord will receive my prayer, which means He will receive it and basically He will answer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let all of my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Now look down at verse 3. David says, My soul also is what? Yeah, dismayed, greatly troubled. Look at verse 10. Now let all my enemies be greatly troubled. See that? David is troubled, or has been troubled. God's answered to sin. Now he says, God, hey, I want them to experience the same thing that I have. I want them to be troubled. Uh, they deserve it because they are evil people and they're not repenting. So he calls God's judgment down on them at this point. And he says, let them turn back. That's his enemies. That means let them retreat. Let them run and be ashamed suddenly. Lord, humiliate them. Put them on the run. Make them retreat. All their plans. Allow those plans to fall apart. Make them run in the opposite direction. How? Suddenly. Now remember David's question. How are you, Lord? <clears throat> Look at this. Suddenly. So when you're reading a psalm, that's what you're hunting for. Just showing you this, this is sort of an aside to show you how to read a psalm. What you're hunting for is you're hunting for those grammatical uh, markers, pivot points, and you're hunting for terminology that is similar throughout the psalm, and you start getting a fuller sense of what that psalm's all about. So, David knows that because he is now repentant, and here's the point, if you repent now, God will forgive you now, and it will be a pivot point in your life. And as a result, God will put these people to flight, his enemies to flight, suddenly. And 
things can change as quickly as you turn to God. So what we have here is we have a psalm that offers a solution to all of us who face discipline. Divine discipline. Because we've gotten ourselves into a mess and we have entered into a period of rebellion. How long will that discipline last? Could be short. Could be long. It could go to generations. But uh, it doesn't have to be that way. Had Israel repented, she wouldn't have been in Babylonian captivity for seven years. It could have been avoided. And so, uh, however long it lasts, there is an end, and there's a quick end for those who are broken and who repent. So that's the lesson that we go away with this week. Next week, we look at Psalm 7, and uh, just look at the superscription with me. A meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. What the world's that? That's what we'll talk about next week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these psalms that speak to our, our hearts and soul, give us words of encouragement, uh, teach us lessons how to avoid. Lord, even, uh, even David uh, was punished. He lost a child because of this. Uh, and then you gave him a new one. You gave him an eighth son. You gave him Solomon. Another son who in many ways broke his heart. But Lord, uh, help us to learn the lessons of David. That when he did get into trouble, he could turn to you. Not, he didn't run away from you. Help us to follow that pattern. Help us to be people after your heart. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.